Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 17, Exodus chapter 20. This week we're going to get into Exodus chapter 20, so open your Bibles and let's start reading. Yeah, that, that caught you by surprise, didn't it? Yeah. See if you're paying attention, that's all. Exodus chapter 20. I am Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. You are to have no other gods before me. You're not to make for yourselves a carved image or any kind of representation of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water below the shoreline. You're not to bow down to them or serve them, for I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my mitzvot. You're not to use lightly the name of Adonai, your God, because Adonai will not leave unpunished someone who uses his name lightly. Remember the day, Shabbat, to set it apart for God. You have six days to do labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Shabbat for Adonai, your God. On it, you're not to do any kind of work. Not you, your son, nor your daughter, not your male or female slave, not your livestock. And not the foreigner staying with you inside the gates to your property. For in six days, Adonai made heaven and earth the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. This is why Adonai blessed the day, Shabbat, and separated it for himself. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land which Adonai your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false evidence against your neighbor. Do not cover, covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people experienced the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the shofar, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. Standing at a distance, they said to Moses, you speak with us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak with us or we'll die. And Moshe answered the people, don't be afraid because God has come only to test you and to make you fear him so that you won't commit sins. So the people stood at a distance, but Moshe approached the thick darkness where God was. Adonai said to Moshe, here's what you're to say to the people of Israel. Put, as, uh, you yourselves have seen that I spoke with you from heaven. You're not to make with me, uh, make me, uh, you're not to make with me gods of silver, nor are you to make gods of gold for yourselves. For me, you need make only an altar of earth. On it, you will sacrifice your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, sheep, goats, cattle, in every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. If you do make me an altar of stone, you're not to build it of cut stones. For if you use a tool on it, you profane it. Likewise, you're not to use steps 
to go up to my altar so that you won't be indecently uncovered. The content of our study for this week, for the next, and probably the next few after that, is going to be complex, at times controversial, and certainly not for the faint of heart. But if you will determine to focus your mind on what we're going to discuss and ask God through the Holy Spirit to teach you, I think you'll come away with an even, even deeper love and understanding of Jehovah in his written word. So bear with me as we're going to go into a a level of detail that I usually try to avoid as being a little too tedious and address some subjects now that will challenge some of our traditional evangelical Christian thinking. Now my goal is not to turn you into scholars, biblical debate artists, all right, um, not even church revolutionaries, although that sounds better and better. Rather, it's simply to present you with what Yehovah has revealed plainly, literally, in his written word, but it seems to have become lost in the denominational shuffles. Okay? And I'm going to let you decide how to respond. Now, if your Bible has a heading at the beginning of this chapter of Exodus, it will almost assuredly say the Ten Commandments. And indeed, these verses of Exodus chapter 20 are the source of what Christians for centuries have held up as that creed, which is the basis for moral and ethical and righteous living. And in both Judaism and Christianity, the Ten Commandments are also known in scholarly and theological circles as the Decalogue. Now, before we move on, I'm curious. How many people here would truly say that they believe the Ten Commandments are real, they're valid, and they're God's word to his people? Come on, I want to see your hands or not your hands. There you go. Okay. How many of these commandments are we, the church, the body of Christ, to be obedient to? Hmm? I mean, are these, is this a list we can kind of choose from, pick a few we like, disregard a few we don't? Okay, all right. I, obviously. In general, almost everyone here, I think was unanimous, is convinced that we're to be obedient to all of the commandments. All ten, right? I just wanted to know. Now, our cherished ten commandments are the beginning of the giving of the law. as it's often called in both Jewish and Christian circles. Immediately following the giving of the Decalogue, the first ten laws, more laws given. And altogether, this is called the Covenant of Moses, or the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinaitic Covenant, or as the church commonly calls it, the Old Covenant. Now, the Covenant of Moses will be the second major covenant God has made with a specific group of people, the Hebrews. The first was with Abraham. Now, there certainly were some pronouncements made by God before Abraham to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, to Noah, uh, concerning the great flood and God's promise never to destroy the world again. And some teachers and scholars will refer to those 
other two sets of pronouncement at times is covenants. And we don't need to get into some theological debate over this. Okay, for the purposes of this class, just for teaching it, we're only going to be labeling three biblical covenants as covenants. All right, the covenants of Abraham, Moses, and of Christ. Now, a couple of salient points will set the stage for our lesson. First, reference to the Mosaic Covenant as the Old Covenant is an unfortunate misnomer. Okay? Because it paints a picture that the Bible simply has two covenants of Yahweh, the old one and the new one. Okay? And from this thinking comes the label that we give to the two halves of our Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? And this, of course, leaves out the all-important covenant of Abraham that is six centuries older than the covenant of Moses, while at the same time, these two are organically connected. Okay, that is, all, both of these work together towards Jehovah's divine purposes. And then the third of these three berit, all right, covenants, is the covenant in Christ, and they all have a very similar form. Now, we've talked at length some months back about the nature and form of biblical covenants. And time doesn't permit me to go, go over it all again. However, I do want to point out that one of the several key elements among the three covenants is that each of them had an associated sign given by God to those who participate in those covenants. The sign for the Abrahamic covenant was male circumcision. Anyone expecting to be part of that covenant was required by God to be circumcised as the outward sign of their acceptance of these terms. The sign of the covenant of Moses, as we will shortly see in the scripture, is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. That is, observance of the Sabbath was now going to be the partially inward and partially outward sign of all those who accepted the law, the Ten Commandments, plus all the other laws and rulings that formed this second of God's covenants. If you expected to be a part of God's separate and distinct people, Israel, then observance of the Sabbath was mandatory because it was the sign of accepting Jehovah's lordship over your life. The third and newest of the covenants is the covenant of Yeshua, the covenant of Yeshua HaMashiach. And the sign for this covenant is the Holy Spirit. That is, this is a covenant whose sign is not outward, but inward, in the person who accepts the terms of and wishes to participate in the covenant of Jesus Christ. Let me say it another way. The sign of your salvation is that you are in union with Yeshua by means of the Holy Spirit that has been placed in you by God. Of itself, it is an outwardly invisible sign, as invisible as Jehovah himself. Okay. Notice an interesting progression. 
The sign of the first covenant is totally physical and it's in the flesh. It's a sign that you wear on your body. The sign of the second covenant is in your soul. Okay? The soul contains the mind and the will. It, it, it's in the form of one's ongoing obedience to the observance of the Sabbath. It's a sign that you do. Okay. The sign of the third covenant is the Spirit. God places the Spirit within or alongside our human spirit. All right. This is a sign that you become. That is, you become a new creation. Now we're going to look at chapter 20 very carefully because one of the most difficult challenges for the modern church collectively and as individuals is untangling centuries of man-ordained doctrine from the God-breathed scriptural truth. Okay. What may seem like an insignificant turn of a word or a phrase can over time lead to very serious error. I'm sure we have navigators in here, whether airplanes or on boats. And when you head out from Florida to Europe, if you're off one degree, you're not going to be anywhere near you intended on landing. Doesn't seem like much, that one little old degree. It's the same problem when our doctrines are off one degree from scriptural truth. The creation of the Anglican Church and then the Protestant Reformation that occurred about the same time as the invention of the printing press led to the believing masses having access for the first time to Holy Scripture. And those happenings were watershed moments in the life of the church. We today are also living in an era of sweeping changes within the church, primarily because of access to scholarship that had been hidden deep inside the bowels of both Hebrew and Christian religious institutions for centuries. Laymen are now able to learn about the structure of the Hebrew language and the nuances of ancient Israelite culture because we have instant access to ancient documents like the Council of Nicaea, the Gospel of Thomas, the writings of the earliest church fathers like Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome. We have them right at our fingertips. No longer is information like that available only in our theological seminaries and private library collections. And what we're finding out is that there were some hidden agendas at work that colored scriptural interpretations and teachings. We even find the sources of some church traditions which, frankly, need to be removed from our lives. And chief among those hidden and long-forgotten agendas, and much to our shame, was a bias against anything Jewish and a willingness to compromise Jehovah's teachings with pagan practices. Okay. And as pertains to our lesson today, there are therefore some basic presumptions that almost all of us 
have lived with in our, our, our entire Christian lives, if not all of our natural lives, about the Ten Commandments that together with Yeshua form the foundation for Christian morals and ethics. Now, armed with some of the knowledge that Yehovah said we would gain towards the end times, there might be no more appropriate time than right now to more carefully examine some of those presumptions about the Decalogue. Let's begin with the first verse of chapter 20, where it says in most Bibles, and or then, God spoke all these words, saying. Now the word I'd like to focus on is near the end of that first verse. Follow along, please, in your Bibles. You're going to have to watch carefully today. And the word I'm interested in is word. I want to talk about that a little bit because the word, word, W-O-R-D, is the term God uses when referring to what the church now calls the Ten Commandments. Yet you will notice that nowhere in chapter 20 did we see God give the title, the Ten Commandments, to what Moses, what he spoke to Moses. Since the title, Ten Commandments, doesn't appear here, the question is, does it, does that make it a doctrine rather than literal scriptural interpretation? That is, like eternal security, or the rapture, or the trinity, which are all doctrines, titles, names, which do not actually appear in scripture, but instead are derived from ideas contained within the scriptures, are the Ten Commandments merely a man-made name for a doctrine? Or rather, does the title Ten Commandments literally appear somewhere in the Bible under that name? The, la the answer to that last question is a qualified no. Okay? And we're going to look more closely at that in just a minute. Now before that, let's see in the original Hebrew what the word, word, as is used here in Exodus 21, means. Because word is what God calls, what we have traditionally called, the commandments. Now, the formal academic name Decalogue is Greek for ten words. Okay? Not ten commandments. Okay? In Hebrew, what we translate to English as word is Davar, D-A-B-A-R, Davar. Davar means speech. It means communicating a thought through audible speech. The bar is an utterance. It's a movement of the vocal cords. It's a word, just like we think of the term word. It's used in oral communication. It's speaking a language. Nothing about this term indicates a command. Okay? Davar is rather neutral. That is, it does not characterize the content of the words. The words could be about anything. So what's being communicated to us in this first verse of chapter 20 is that Moses did not receive the Decalogue through divine inspiration. Rather, God actually spoke all of these words audibly 
in a manner that human ears could hear. God gave these words, these these ten words, by means of an oracle, not inspiration. Much of Holy Scripture is accomplished indeed through divine inspiration. That is, the Holy Spirit moved a man supernaturally, somehow, in conjunction with that man's own mind, to write down that which is true and absolute and divine and what Yehovah has deemed. He wanted men to know about him. Here, however, in Exodus 20, it was not divine inspiration upon a man that was recorded. It was God speaking, which is the meaning of the word oracle. It was God speaking to Moses and Israel in an audible voice. And what is written down in scripture is said to be the actual words that God spoke and the people of Israel heard that very day. Now, Yehovah wanted that fact to be made so very clear for all time that not only did God himself audibly speak these words, but later with his own finger, figuratively speaking, did he also carve those same words into stone tablets that they be preserved throughout the history of mankind. Man had nothing to do with this at any stage. And again, this is totally unlike the vast bulk of Bible scripture which has this peculiar collaboration between God and man involved in it. Now, some ancient Jewish sages would argue to a degree with what I just told you about Yehovah speaking these words. A small minority would say that only the first and second commandments were spoken directly by Yehovah to Moses in Israel, and the rest he just wrote on the tablets of stone. Their reasoning is that in the first two commandments, God spoke of himself in the first person. And he didn't in the remaining eight. Therefore, they say Yehovah spoke audibly the first two commands, but then nothing further. Well, I only bring this up in case some of you may have heard that, because there's nothing in scripture that would indicate that that was the case. Now, just to make something crystal clear, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 5, and we're going to read verses 22 to 24 together. Deuteronomy 5, verses 22 to 24. But why should we keep risking death? This great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of Adonai our God any more, we'll die. For who is there of all humanity that has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire as we have and stayed alive? It, well, okay. The, the problem is, it's, it, it may be a little bit different than yours. If you've got the... If, it, it may be 25 in a, in a, if it's not in this Bible. Okay, if it's not in the complete Jewish Bible. It says, if you go near and hear anything Adonai our God says, then you will tell us everything Adonai our God says to you and we'll listen and we'll do it. 
So this should make it crystal clear that Yehovah spoke these ten words out loud so all of Israel could hear them and that the remainder of the law he gave to Moses but not out loud for others to hear. Now, as to the title that the church traditionally gives that which follows verse 1, the Ten Commandments. Not until later, in Exodus 34:28, is this speech of God to Israel, which is in verses uh, chapter 20, verses 2 through 17, not, not until Exodus 34 is this given a formal title. And the formal title in Hebrew is Aser Debar. Okay. Indeed, Aser is a common Hebrew word used for the number 10. But what did we just learn that Debar meant? That's right. It means words. And God spoke all these dabar, words, an utterance, a speech. Hence, the more correct Greek translation that Bible scholars use, Decalogue, is, is probably one that, that would be wise for us to begin to use. Because that indeed means ten words. Now you might say, isn't all this just being a tad persnickety? I mean, are a little overly technical because what follows is certainly ten instructions, ten commands of God that we're to follow. So what's the harm in whatever we choose to call it? Now, before I address the reasons why, the reasons rather, why labeling the bulk of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, presents a problem, you need to know that after Exodus 34:28, there are only two other places in the Bible that the title, or a title, for what we call the Ten Commandments is used, and that's in Deuteronomy 4.13 and 10.4. And in all cases, the phrase is Eser Debar, the Ten Words. Now, in order to show you the problem with incorrectly turning the word Debar, which just simply means word or words, into commands or commandments, I need to address another issue first. And that is the numbering of the Ten Commandments, or better, the Ten Words. If you don't have one of these complete Jewish Bibles, hopefully somebody sitting right next to you does. If you do, kind of scrooch in and look over somebody's shoulder. Who? Here, raise your hand if you've got one of these blue Bibles. The complete Jewish Bibles. Okay, get near somebody because you just you just have to do this for a second. It's okay. Most people here have probably taken showers recently, so it'll be all right. Now, look in um, Exodus chapter 20, and look in the left-hand column. All right, Exodus chapter 20. Let me get there too. And preceding each of the ten so-called commandments is a single Hebrew letter. Right? You see that? Okay. What these are actually representing is numbers. Because in the Hebrew writing system, the alphabetic letters also are used to represent numbers. The first Hebrew letter you see is an Aleph. Right? In addition to being part of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph also represents the number one. Okay. The second letter you see just below the olive, 
all right, is the Hebrew letter bet, all right, which represents the number two. And this pattern continues until we come to the Hebrew letter yud, which represents the number ten. This isn't too hard to figure out. Now understand, in the original Hebrew, these Hebrew numbers actually appeared. All right, in the text margin, just as you see here in the complete Jewish Bible. Okay. In the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we have, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Ten Words, Ten Commandments, were each assigned a Hebrew number preceding the actual word or command. Our modern versions have, for the most part, decided to delete the numbering of the commands. Now, Without looking at any of your Bibles for a second, can anyone remember what we've all learned at some time or another is the very first of the Ten Commandments or Ten Words? i put it up here for you so you can cheat. And of course, it's, I am the Lord thy God, you shall have no other gods before me. It's also sometimes simply taught as you shall have no other gods before me. I'm sure nobody here would disagree with that. Well, as hard as it is to believe, the problem starts right there. Because if you look at, go back again to your Bible and take a look here, all right, um, what we've always thought is the first commandment is not the first commandment. Okay, the first commandment is actually or the first word, see how we get confused, we start using the word commandment? The first word, alright, is actually, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. Okay, the, you shall have no other gods before me is actually the second commandment. Uh, even more in the original Hebrew, what I'm now showing you in the first commandment, though it's typically listed in your Bibles as the second commandment, all right, or not at all, is that it actually correctly reads, I am Yudhevahe, I am Yehoveh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the abode out of out of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. That's right, where just about every Bible says, I'm the Lord your God. The original Hebrew is literally translated, I am Yehovah, your Elohim. Okay? It uses both God's personal name and his title in the text. Now, a few weeks ago, I briefly mentioned this anomaly about the first commandment as we know it as not being what we're usually taught is the first commandment. And in fact, the original first commandment is deleted from the Christian version of the Ten Commandments. It's not deleted from our Bibles, it's just not considered one of the Ten Commandments. And after that class, a couple of people came up and said to me, well, yeah, but what you call the First Commandment doesn't even qualify as a commandment, it's just a statement. It's kind of a preamble, so it doesn't belong as a commandment. Right, because it's not a commandment any more than the others are. They're words, they're statements. You with me? See how this messes with us by just changing the meaning that little tiny bit? Okay? 
Big difference in our minds, isn't there, between a word and a commandment. So the man-made title of Ten Commandments completely mischaracterizes the nature and purpose of the Ten Words. In fact, these are more principles than commandments. They're statements, not commandments. Now please understand that the reason that we should include I am Yehovah, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery, as a so-called commandment, is because it's always been there as the first of the ten. I'm not making this stuff up. I didn't add it in. It's even assigned the number one in the original Hebrew script. All modern Hebrew scholarship is unanimous on this. Yet I must tell you forthrightly that there was a time after the Jews' exile in Babylon when that list of Ten Commandments indeed dropped that biblical first commandment and so it looks like our modern Christian list today. Later, sometime before Jesus, it was revised to re-include the first biblical command. This time period after Babylon saw great corruption and negligence of many of the biblical institutions like Sabbath observance, ritual washing, observance of the biblical feasts, and more. Okay. Now today, the biblical list of the Ten Commandments, as it as appears in Holy Scriptures, is what Jews observe. However, Christians use the version today that eliminates the very first commandment. Now, a question that would be pretty reasonable to ask right about now would be, what would possibly be the motive for early Christian leaders to drop that first commandment and then for later Christian leaders to just continue with the practice? It doesn't make any sense. Actually, it makes all kinds of sense. Okay? Let's think for a minute about what we've learned over the past several weeks about the beginnings of Christianity. We know it began as a strictly Jewish movement because it was all about Judaism looking for their Jewish Messiah. And indeed, the Jewish Messiah came. He was and is Jewish. He was born to Jewish parents in the Holy Land and all of his first followers were Jewish. Our precious New Testament tells us that. But very quickly after Yeshua's death, Gentiles started to be included in the Jesus movement. Right. And in a few more years, their numbers swelled, primarily due to the work of the Apostle Paul. Yet for several decades after Yeshua's death, the Christian movement was still led primarily by Jewish leadership. It wasn't until sometime after 100 A.D., that the number of Gentiles accepting Yeshua as Lord and Savior equaled or exceeded the number of Jews who accepted Yeshua as Lord and Savior. And with that, Gentiles began to gain control over the early church. And by the mid-100s AD, Gentiles were now in powerful positions of authority within the church, and an anti-Jewish mindset began to arise, okay, which led to an attempt to minimize Jewish influence within the church. Now, the very first center 
of Christianity was in Jerusalem. Obviously, because Jerusalem was the center of Jewish worship. Okay. Later, though, the center of Christianity became Rome, because Rome was the center of the Gentile world. Now, early in the 300s AD, the emperor of Rome at that time, Constantine, not only declared Christianity to be a legal religion inside the Roman Empire, but that he himself preferred it. And further, that the church was to become, by decree, a Gentiles-only club. And that Jews were now, by law, forbidden to participate unless they renounced their Jewish heritage and quit their Jewish traditions. Okay. It was the Roman Church, now today better known as the Catholic Church, which, rightfully so, declared the Ten Commandments to be one of the founding pillars of Christianity. And the first commandment, the first word, as written in Holy Scripture, um, was excluded. And instead, they began with the second commandment. They did simply what the Jews had done for a time following Babylon. They simply took a follow me, the second commandment, the second word, they divided it in two. So that the first half of the second commandment became commandment number one, and the second half of that same commandment became commandment number two. It was just that simple. So what was in Holy Scripture, a single commandment overnight became two. Right. Take a look at the complete Jewish Bible again. You recall that our traditional first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the traditional second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. But in the original scripture, those two commandments together followed, were just, were just one long command. The original second commandment. In essence, what the church has done is to make ten commandments out of nine. Okay. Now, why did the Roman church do this? Because the church, by the time of Constantine, wanted absolutely no connection between Jewishness and Christianity. None. They wanted to sever any relationship between the Jews and this new Gentile faith called Christianity. They wanted to destroy any thought, any principle, revise any history, they kept any element of Jewishness in what had become by decree an exclusively Gentile religion. If they had kept that original first commandment, first word on the list of ten, it would have created quite a problem for their anti-Jewish agenda by acknowledging that God gave these ten commandments along with hundreds of others to Israel. That's what he says. I'm giving it to you who I brought out of Egypt, not giving it to Gentiles whom he had redeemed from the hand of Egypt. And so, and since it would be a thousand years before the masses were even permitted to read, let alone, let alone own Holy Scripture, whatever decrees the church published became the truth. By leaving out any reference to Israel, 
in the Ten Commandments, this helped to cement the idea that Christianity wasn't for the Jews. So what we need to come away with is this. The term Ten Commandments is a man-made name for the list we find in Exodus 20, and it's a misfortunate, uh, rather an unfortunate mischaracterization. And that we need to slightly revise that list by putting the first word back into that list. And we need to understand that some critical scriptural translations have been done in a somewhat biased manner. Right? Such as substituting the word command for word. Now, there is indeed a Hebrew word for command. And usually the word used for that is mitzvah. Okay? But command doesn't even really capture the entire essence of the word mitzvah either. All right? Because mitzvah more correctly means a God-given ruling. Okay, we'll get into that later. Now, while this is important enough in itself, I tell you this, because when we hit the next chapter of Exodus, chapter 21, we immediately run into another phrase that is key to our understanding of what is usually called the law, right, that was about to be given to Moses. And this phrase was not necessarily mistranslated, but it does give us the wrong impression, particularly in Western society, of what the Torah is all about. And the result is a generally negative view about the Torah. So, Exodus chapter 20 gives us a record of what the ten words given to Moses on Mount Sinai were. And the ten words set the stage for all the so-called law that was going to be given to Moses and Israel. Yet, we cannot deny that these ten words were also decidedly set apart and held up higher from all the rest. So if we need to kind of rethink the notion of these ten words as being ten commandments, then I guess the question for us is, how can we more properly characterize them? Well, I suggest that we think of our Declaration of Independence or our Constitution. Because contained within those two documents are several concrete and viable assertions and principles that set up the framework for our nation and the system of government that would follow. Yet none of us would think about calling what's contained in these documents, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, as commandments. Okay. I think there are two phrases, therefore, in common use in American culture that pretty well sums up the nature of these ten words given to Moses that are better than the term commandments, and it would be declarations and principles. Okay. That is, the ten words are the founding principles for all the law that will follow. The 613 laws, the ten, first ten being the Decalogue, the ten words that God will give Israel, are in essence how you live out the principles that he's going to be giving. Okay. It's almost as though the following 603 laws are but extensions of those ten declarations. Okay. The 613 laws all operate within the boundaries 
of the ten words. Just as all of our civil and criminal laws in America must operate within the boundaries of the principles declared in our Constitution. In fact, it was a common understanding in Yeshua's day that not only did all law, all true Torah, operate within the principles of the ten words of Exodus 20, but that those ten words themselves operated subject to an even higher, more basic principle. Anybody remember what that higher principle is? So right over here. That's right. Love your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's open Matthew 22 for a minute. We'll close tonight. Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22. When the crowds heard how he taught, they were astounded. But when the Sadducim learned that he had silenced the Sadducim, they got together. And one of them who was a Torah expert asked Shelah to trap him. Rabbi which of the commands in the Torah is the most important? And he told him, You're to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important mitzvah command. And second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the Torah and the prophets are dependent on these two commands. Which is kind of an interesting phrase considering so much of the church says that the Torah and the prophets ended. So the principle of love your God with all your heart, mind, and strength becomes the basis for the ten words. And out of the founding principles of the ten words comes the 613 laws. Yeshua himself confirmed this. And by the way, that highest principle, love your God with all your heart, is not a principle formulated in the New Testament. Rather, it's just repeated. It was first given to us in that form in the Torah in Deuteronomy 6.5. In fact, more than half of the New Testament is simply quotes of the Old Testament. So with that as a background... Starting next week, we're going to begin to work our way through the ten words of Exodus 20, which are the ten founding principles that will be used for all the laws that will come after it. Okay? That'll do it for tonight.